At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Which is why I have been so grateful for this latest sermon series on family that we've been going through, Family, Why Bother? How families are a blessing and how families are broken. The ideas of family, the experience of family that is so integral to all of our lives. To see how God continues to reach out, continues to love, continues to correct, and continues to pursue us as his children. I'm reminded constantly when I read these stories and go through these series that we do here at Woodside, the goal isn't for us to get through the Bible. The goal is to get the Bible through us. In our first week, we covered creation, and C.T. spoke about how we were created for dignity. The easiest way that I've always remembered this was this. In the creation story, in the first three days, God created the realms. The light had been separated from darkness, the sky above and the oceans below when he separated the waters. The dry land was formed and given power forth vegetation. And then the second three days, he actually created the rulers that would have dominion over those realms. The sun, the moon, and the stars over light and darkness. The living creatures in the waters and winged birds over the skies. He filled the land with creatures of the earth and he saw that it was good. Then on day six, also, we covered that God made man in God's words in our own image and likeness and gave him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And that's Genesis 1.26. That's the dignity that C.T. spoke about, that we are created so that we can sound the heartbeat of our creator in his creation to care for it. In week two, we saw that we were created for community, but sin separates us. Yet God provides a way that we can be reconciled to him through Christ and others. And how being a follower of Christ, it changes our whole perspective on relational conflict and how we're able to take up and how we're supposed to take up God's ministry of reconciliation as we preach the word and preach the gospel and work for peace in all our relationships. In week three, we heard the story of Cain and Abel and how the destructive power of sin can pass from one generation to the next and how pride creeps into our relationships, even our relationship with God. Yet we saw how Jesus alone can renew, refresh, and restore our families when they've been damaged by sin. And last week, we viewed Abraham and Sarah and what can happen when we lose faith in the promises of God to allow fear to pull us away from God's purposes and promises for our life. The common thread through all of that is that sin in all human relationships, and especially family relationships, is a result of failing to trust the Word of God. Adam and Eve failed to trust God's Word and believe the lies of Satan. Cain failed to trust God and offer a sincere and appropriate sacrifice and instead murdered his brother. Abraham faced serious trouble that impacted his life deeply when he failed to trust God's promises. Yet if you see the thread that holds this all together, it's God's mercy. It's his grace. He constantly and continually reaches out to his creation, calling us back, running up the road to greet us when we turn back to him. 
That is an amazing God. Amen? This week, we're going to be reading where Abraham is now preparing a wife for Isaac. And this is another time where Scripture begs a question of us. If God asked you to go, would you go? To get to what we know as chapter 24, we are in a section of Scripture where this is taking place about the same time prior to B.C. that we are now living in. But this took place about 4,000 years ago. And that may seem like a long time ago, because it is. But I'm here to tell you that the events of that time are as relevant today as they were then. In the beginning, God created, and that's Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. Sin has now entered the world. Sin continues to grow, so when we get to Genesis 6 and verse 6, it says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture to me. So God sent a judgment of water, and we know that is the flood. Please note that in every judgment of God throughout the Bible, there is always a line of grace. There's always a line of mercy. He spared Noah and his family. Just as C.T. talked on about his reset bonnet on his Nintendo last week, God reset things in his mercy and grace. In Genesis 10 and 11, we see that God told Noah and his descendants to multiply and spread out, and of course they did. Not. And instead, they built a great city and a tower reaching up to heaven. So then God scrambled the languages and created the nations. Then in Genesis 11, we meet the family of Abram, who we know mostly as Abraham. If you remember the acrostic SALT, S-A-L-T, you'll remember exactly who they are. It was Sarah, Abraham, Lot, and Terah. Sarah was Abraham's wife. Abraham was Sarah's husband. It works well that way. Lot was a nephew. And then Terah, which was Abraham's father. Their assignment, just like yours and mine, to be salt of the earth and make people thirsty for God. God called them out of Ur. Now, to do this today, I kind of had to set out a little map on the floor here. So if you are facing north, I am facing south. This is just in this room. I want you all to be able to get home tonight, okay? But if you're facing north and I'm facing south, which way is east? This way, right. East is this way, west is that way. Ur resides all the way, if you could go all the way to the southeast, actually to the outside of the building, Ur is way down there, and that's where Abraham and Sarah and Lot and Terah are living. They're all the way down in Ur when God calls them out of Ur. They had to come up, when God called them out of there, they had to come up to get to the land of Israel, which I would be standing at the northern end of Israel, kind of see a Galilee down here. But at any rate, they had to come up, but they can't do a straight line because there's a huge desert in the middle. They would never survive that trip. So nobody ever came straight from Ur to, to where we are. But basically, he had to come up through what we know as the Fertile Crescent and through Mesopotamia. In there, he came about between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. If you ever have a problem remembering those rivers that are happening on the east, because this comes up in stories all throughout time throughout the Old Testament. But if you ever have a problem, there was a little girl in a walk through the Bible seminar one time that she goes, oh, I get it. First you see the Tigris, then the Euphrates. <laughs> I love the way our imagination works, and God gave us an imagination. So he came up between the rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates, and they ended up in a, in a city called Haran. And in Haran, they set up residence again. That's where Terah kind of plopped everything and his family and everybody, and they stayed in Haran. And then later on, that's where Terah dies. Now that's somewhat important because of this. Terah was the patriarch of the family when, when Terah passes away. Who's now the patriarch of the family? Abraham, thank you. 
So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, who is now again the patriarch of the family, travels with Sarah and Lot and all the possessions that they gained in Haran, and they traveled to Canaan. They haven't entered into the promised land yet, but they're in Canaan. And here Abraham has two sons. Ishmael is the first, but Ishmael is not the son of promise. And then he has Isaac, and Isaac is the son of promise. And then we get all the way to the beginning of chapter 23, and in chapter 23 is where Sarah, at 127 years old, Sarah dies. So now it's just Abraham and Lot had separated time ago, so now it's just Abraham and Isaac together. And that brings us to chapter 24, where we'll begin. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. But before we start, please let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to, to look back and to see your mercies and your grace and your promises and how true they are. Father, I pray as we have this time together that you would show us who we are. And also, Father, show us who you are. Lord, we can have the intimate relationship with you that you created us for. Father, help us to always remember that this just isn't a story of old, but it's your story, and it's our story. And Father, if the story of our lives were ever written, please let us be faithful. May it reflect a life that always turns to you in every victory, in every trouble, in every mountaintop, in every valley. And Father, for that, we will give you the glory and the honor that you so rightly deserve. And so we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Genesis 24, the word of God says this. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. As I have had the opportunity to spend some time with Abraham these last few weeks as I've been studying this, I was taken by his faith and also his failures of faith. He is living a comfortable life in Ur. He has a beautiful wife. We know that from his time in Egypt. His father, his family has faith and things seem pretty good. Then God calls and tells him it's time to move. Move where, you ask? I'm sure he asked. But God didn't answer. God tells him, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. They ended up stopping in Haran and setting up a residence. And it's there that Terah dies, as we talked about, and Abraham stays. Yet that wasn't the full plan. 
So God tells him to leave there, to go forth from his country and from his relatives and from his father's house and go to a land that he would show him. Here's a part of Abraham's faith that I'm amazed by because Abraham didn't take that and throw out a fleece. He didn't continue to question God. He didn't second guess whether it was really God's voice and not just some voice in his head. Abraham rented and packed up the ewe camel with his family and they started on a trip not knowing where he was headed. And like most men, he was not asking for directions. But what would make him do that? If you heard God's voice and he told you just to pack up everything and go, would you go without question? And what if your spouse heard God's voice telling them to pack up everything and go? Would you just go with them in that question? Would you not ask for directions or at least where we're going? Sarah's faith in this always amazed me too. I remember when my wife and I started our business and we had an idea. We thought it was pretty good. We spent almost a year fleshing it out, writing a business plan, getting surveys done, and then it was time. We needed to move. We needed to find some property. We needed to get a special land use permit. We needed to acquire more debt and build a building and hire an employee. And hopefully, hopefully we had the right plan. In the midst of that, we also had to move churches. We were in the midst of adopting three babies. I had recently changed jobs, and Denise was homeschooling our two oldest. It just seemed like a really good time to stress our relationships to the max, just hit every button on that control panel, let's just see what happens. What made us do that? Did we have a clear edict from God? No, we didn't. We didn't have a clue, really, if it was going to work out or not. And I don't mean that to say that we didn't plan well, because we did. And I don't mean that to say that we didn't seek counsel or that we didn't seek God in the midst of that. We did. But what we didn't have was the clear promise that everything was going to be okay and that that business would succeed. We just knew that if it failed, we would have to start all over again. What was it that Abraham had that allowed him to just up and move? What was it that made him trust? What would you need to trust like Abraham? In Genesis 12, though, the Word of God says this, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I, whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. What did Abraham have? He had a promise from God. And that's the first point today, that we have to trust the promises of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible comes from 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, where Peter tells us that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We live in a world of broken promises where people in our lives and those in leadership make a lot of promises that never get fulfilled. We hear political leaders make promises to get elected, but they don't always make good on their word. We have a divorce rate that hovers in the 50% range inside and outside of the church because people stand at the altar and say, I promise, and then they choose to do something else. And there are countless other examples of how we live in a culture of broken promises while the word promise is used flippantly each day. Because of this, sometimes we can think of the promises of God in the same way. But the promises of God are not flippant nor false. 
Rather, they are as sure as gravity. And all throughout Scripture, we see how God has always been faithful to his promises made. And Abraham is an example of this. At first blush, when I read this chapter, my first thought was how important it was to marry the right person. Abraham was rightly concerned that Isaac not marry a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites worshipped all kinds of idols and different gods. And they could have led Isaac astray. He forbid taking Isaac back to Haran as Isaac may decide to stay there again. Both of those options would have been renouncing God's promises. The takeaway isn't marry the right person, while that's still really important. The real takeaway is that Abraham understood the promise God made. He not only understood it, but he also trusted God would do what he said he would do. There isn't a spot in the scripture that tells us that God told him he would send his angel before his servant. How would Abraham know that he would? How would you know? He had seen God move many times in his life at this point, and if you think on it, you have too. He saw God's protection over him, even when he failed, like when he said Sarah was his sister in Egypt. He saw God's protection when he was faithful in his move to Canaan. He saw promise fulfilled in his son Isaac even after he took matters into his own hands and Ishmael was born. He had learned that God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He trusted the promise of God. Abraham learned that if promises of God are to be fulfilled, that only God will bring that about. The responsibility that is given to Abraham and to us is to trust God's promises. So I have to ask, where do you find yourself today? Are you trusting the promises of God? I'll be up front, since I'm up front. I struggle many times with trusting the promises of God. Many times in my life, I have not waited patiently. I, too, have tried to force the hand of God and make things happen myself. I've tried to tell God, look, I'm headed this way, so come along with me and follow me and bless me, please, on this path. It's not that I didn't believe God. It's just that I thought I knew the way. My faith hasn't always been in the right place in certain circumstances. And we trust God through our faith. Do we have faith in him and his promises? In Galatians 3, 26 through 29, the word of God says this, For it is in Christ Jesus that you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Heirs according to the promise. And again, this isn't just a story. This is our family history now. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. But only if you're Christ. If you haven't made that decision, I would implore you to look to God and to receive his son. Then you are heir to his promises, his promise of salvation, his promise of life eternal with God, his promise of his grace and his mercy in your life. You see, like Abraham, we must trust God's promises in faith. 
In Romans 4.13, Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Then in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent to the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And once we trust the promises of God through faith, we can then seek the provision of God. Once God has promised, God will fulfill that promise, and we need to pray for his provision to that end. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Nahor was Abraham's brother. The city was named after that, but it's still Haran. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one to whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." Please notice that the servant didn't ask for just a sign. He didn't ask for something extraordinary that would take him by surprise, and then he could know that it was God. It was not that God has never sent extraordinary signs. He has. But when he's done that, it's always been in extraordinary circumstances in Scripture. I have seen many a Christian go in a wrong direction asking for a sign in some extraordinary fashion. And sometimes they virtually make things up to go in a direction that they want to go. And, sometimes, and then they see a sign, and so they make it so they can do whatever they want. Other times, they don't see what they want, and they abandon something that God would never have them abandon, and they say it was for lack of a sign. In Matthew 16, 1 through 4, the Word of God says this, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The servant didn't ask for a miraculous sign from God. He sought guidance in the regular way, the ordinary events of life. The faithful servant placed himself in reliance upon God, knowing only God could affect such a providence. And guess what? God answered. Verse 15 and following says this, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water on her shoulder, and the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew water for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had pro prospered his journey or not. How do we seek God's provision? 
We pray. We pray. Pray for his provision. There are many things we don't have to pray his provision about, though, and because his provision already exists in his word. Moral issues, for some example. Should I take supplies from my employer? No. No need to pray. Just read your Bible. Same is true about prejudice, bigotry, hatred, marrying a non-Christian, and many others. God gave us a really long letter with all the moral instructions. We just need to read the letter for those. Then there are some areas of his word that it doesn't readily answer. Areas like changing jobs, choosing a school for your children, moving, buying a home, joining a ministry in the church. We still seek God's provision in his word and through wise counsel and through prayer. The servant didn't try to manufacture something for God. He didn't see a lovely woman walking away and then try to fit her into what he wanted. He placed himself completely dependent on the Lord's provision. And many times we need to be able just to interpret what we see. I don't think it was shocking that Rebecca came to the well. I'd even give room for her kindness to a stranger to offer him a drink when he asked. I find that in line with many Old Testament stories. What stands out to me is the watering of the camel. It wasn't like giving your dog a bowl of water here. Camels drink gallons of water, and this, this servant had 10 of them. I also read that the typical camel could drink up to 25 gallons of water. The jar that she was carrying would carry a little over maybe three gallons. Worst case scenario is that Rebecca could have taken 83 trips to completely water those camels. Her making that comment that she would water the camel was a huge thing. But notice what the servant was doing while she was watering the camel. In verse 21, it says, The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He was discerning through common actions what God was doing. He was paying attention and obeying God which is the final point today. We do need to trust the promises of God. We need to seek the provision of God, and then we must obey the plan of God. We saw this amazing illustration of faith uh, with Abraham when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. He trusted the promise, he sought the provision, and he obeyed the plan, even though it didn't make sense for him to do so. He trusted the promises of God even when he didn't understand what God was doing. The servant had done his part now. He knew through Abraham the promise. He sought first provision for his journey, then provision from God for the woman. Now it was up to Rebecca. Would Rebecca trust the promise and seek the provision and obey the plan? Look down on the page to verses 57 and 61, and at this point in the story, the servant has gone back now to Rebecca's house, has told the story to Rebecca's father, mother, and brother. He told them about Abraham, Isaac, his travel, the purpose of his travel, and how he prayed to God for provision, and Rebekah was chosen by God. Then he asked them to take Rebekah home to Isaac. Their answer was recorded for us in verses 57 and following, where the word of God says this, Let us call the young woman and ask her. Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, O our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. 
Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the men. Thus the servant took Rebekah and his wife away. The final thing we see in this story is to obey the plan of God. God's amazing providence could not be denied. As before, the servant bows his head and worshiped the Lord, and then gave gifts to both Rebecca and the family. Her simple, I will go, shows the nature of her trust in the God of Abraham. Her simple, faithful, I will, was obedience to the plan of God in her life. Simple obedience, while not easy, is the way of the kingdom of God. So many people struggle with saying yes to the big things within Christianity, whatever they may be. Maybe God does call you to Africa. But most kingdom movement comes from saying yes to simple acts of obedience. Saying yes to spending time with Jesus each day, discipling your children, staying pure, pursuing your spouse, living on mission, being generous with your finances are all examples of simple acts of obedience that we can say yes to every day. They're all examples of obedience we can say, as Rebecca did, I will go. Even for me to be up here today, it took an act of obedience to say I will when CT asked me to preach. When I received Christ many years ago, I never thought I would be up here. It was simple acts of obedience, and I will when I was asked Years ago, if I'd teach the youth at my first church, I was guided by a man that had mentored me to do that. Again, an I will when he guided me to teach an adult Sunday school class. An I will when at my next church I was asked to preach Good Friday services. An I will when he led me to be a walk through the Bible instructor. Each time, my natural inclination was to say no, no. I'm not trained to do that. I have no seminary degree. I'm not qualified to teach by those standards. Yet I did learn a long time ago in this faith that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And what about you? Where is he calling you? What areas of your life do you need to respond to the will of God in obedience by saying, I will? Many of the issues we have within our families are because we are not obeying the plan of God for our lives. The revealed plan of God within Scripture, so many have said no thanks or I know a better way rather than yes, I will to the plan of God. Just thinking about family life, have you said yes, I will to the plan of God for your family? Men, since this is being Father's Day, are you obeying the plan of God for your family as father and husband? Not your plan, but God's plan. Women, are you obeying the plan of God for your family as a mother and a wife? Not obeying the world's plans for a mother and a wife, but God's plan. For the young people here today, are you obeying the plan of God within your family by respecting and obeying your parents? Young adults, are you obeying the plan of God in how you live, date, and plan for a future family? God has a lot to say about how you plan your future. May we be a people that look to the saints that went before us, like Rebecca, but ultimately to Jesus who perfectly obeyed the plan of God for his life and because that changed the world. Even when it was hard and overwhelming, he still obeyed. Overwhelmed with the path forward, Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but your will be done. May we be people that respond to God with obedience, even when it's hard and overwhelming. People that respond to the plan of God, not with my will, but yours be done. And allow God to use us to change the world. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.